Last week, you'll remember that we began a study on a very important doctrine, which is referred to as the perseverance of the saints. And today, I'm going to be continuing that. Today will be a little bit different. I thought for sure that we would get into John's text in 1 John 1, verses 5 to 10, because that's where we're at. But to be honest, as I was writing out and thinking through my introduction, it kept going on and on and on. And so today, essentially, is a glorified introduction. As you get to know my preaching better, you'll realize, if you haven't already, that my introductions often can go for half of the sermon. And that's because a lot of times there's so much helpful context or pertinent doctrine that helps, in my mind, set the table for us to then come to this text and dine at it. For us to be able to truly understand what we need to know from a given piece of Scripture, sometimes there's a lot that we need to bring to bear to our minds so that we truly get a grasp of what it's saying. And to understand 1 John 1, 5-10, there's more legwork that we have to do doctrinally to be able to see exactly what it is that John would have us to understand. And so I began talking about this idea of perseverance. Uh, This idea simply indicates that the Bible teaches us how a person who is converted by the grace of the Holy Spirit is given a life that will never fail to yield fruit in some manner. Not in perfection, but some fruit at all times. This doctrine affirms the fact that a person, first of all, cannot have their salvation removed from them after it has been given by God through Christ because God does all things well. This doctrine affirms what James said in his epistle where he said that faith without works is dead. There are a lot of theological things that seem to be at odds with each other when we think about this, and we're going to try to resolve them in our time today. You cannot claim to have a true faith if it is not accompanied with a certain kind of living. That's essentially what perseverance tells us. And as I stated briefly last week, we have to be very careful how we understand this doctrine of perseverance or this idea of how fruitful living is necessary for the Christian. Because we should never, never conclude that our fruit or our works or our obedience is in any way the basis for our salvation, or specifically that it is the basis for our justification. We have to be very clear about that. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul indicated that the work of Christ on the cross accomplished this specific purpose. He said that there that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. We don't become right before God in ourselves. We do so only in Christ and in His work alone. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Acts 15.11, Paul says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And then in Ephesians 2.8, we read, By grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Those verses make it so clear that the work of justification has nothing to do with us 
and everything to do with a gracious gift of God. We have to have that clear in our minds. I could go on and on to read text after text that explicitly teaches justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, fully apart from human working. So when we're talking about the idea of perseverance, we are not talking about justification. We're not talking about the moment of our conversion. We're not talking about when God does a legal work on our behalf by counting the righteousness of Christ to our account at the cross. That's what happens at justification. However, we have to realize that this work of justification always goes hand in glove with another work of God. He does not do one without the other. And if we're being good students in how we think about this, we should realize that he can't do one of these works without the other work. I think it's in, the, in your notes there. The other work that, do, that God does for the sinner at the same time as justification is a work that we call regeneration. Justification goes hand in glove with regeneration. And after I explain regeneration, I think you'll see that our doctrine of perseverance will be the only logical and natural conclusion that we could come to. So let me get just a little bit of a running start here so I can best explain the idea of regeneration. And I want to do so by asking us a question. I don't think this is a hard question. What simple word, what simple idea do we find in the Bible that describes our necessary response at the time of our salvation? So at the time we are justified, at the time, the moment we are saved, what word or idea does the Bible use to describe what our response always is? It does not refer to a work because we know our salvation is not founded upon a work, and Scripture tells us that it's not a work, but it is rather a response from us, which is the means by which God works our justification. Or in other words, we, are, we would say that we are justified through what? And the word, hopefully, that comes to your mind is the word faith. Faith is our response. God works justification through faith. Here are just a few scripture texts that make this very clear. Romans 1.17, quoting from Habakkuk, The just shall live by faith. Romans 3.28, Paul says we are justified by faith. In Romans 4.5, Paul said that Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Romans 5.1, Paul says that we have been justified by faith. Galatians 2.16 we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And I could give you even more verses if we had time. But the point is clear that faith is in some way obviously and clearly and necessarily connected to our justification. We don't have justification if we don't have faith. We see very plainly in Scripture that those two are connected. And that leads us to another important question that we should ask when we realize this. If we must have faith for justification, and we must, then where does our faith come from? From where does faith come? Does it come from us? Is it merely a natural faith that we muster up or conjure up in ourselves? 
Is it simply an intellectual or a moral response to facts that are presented to us? I think we all know by experience that there is something special about saving faith. There's something unique about it. After all, if saving faith were as simple as convincing people to agree to a certain set of facts, then why aren't there more Christians in the world? We're convinced, every one of us, that gravity is true. If you throw a ball in the air, it comes down. There's not a human, at least in their right mind, that would disagree with gravity. We're convinced, every one of us, of the logic of how electricity flows and how it powers our homes and our devices. And even though these are logical conclusions that are easy to comprehend, as Christians, every one of us here, we, can, would, we would agree that there is a far easier conclusion to come to, which is the fact that we're sinners and we need Christ's death to save us. Is that not more logical than gravity? Yet, yet if it is more logical than even something like gravity, then why are there so many on earth who do not understand it? There's so many in the world who affirm what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, that the word of the cross is what? Foolishness. And that the, the preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. There are so many in the world who are in the category that Paul mentions in Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. We have to also accept what the apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 about the lost. All those who are lost in this world, according to Paul, he says this, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the point here is that a person does not simply become convinced of the gospel so as to believe in it in the same way that we would become convinced of gravity or electricity, or even become convinced in the ability of the pew you're sitting in to hold you up so that you put your faith in it and sit in it. It's something more than that, this saving faith that we're talking about, because it's something that is beyond natural explanation. Remember what James said about belief in James 2.19. He said, even the demons believe and they respond appropriately. They shudder. But yet their belief is not true belief. And listen to this short list of the things that true saving faith does for a person. I would recommend you maybe someday do a study, open your concordance, and look for faith in the New Testament and write out everything that faith is said to do for you. You'll be stunned by everything you see that faith does for you. It's more than just justification. It's a lot of things. I'll just give you a few. In Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned. God has measured faith to each person in order that we might think in a mature, in a mature sober, serious, Christian manner. We have the ability to reason with spiritual judgment into important matters. Why? 
Because we have faith. In Galatians 2.20, Paul's talking about his life. Paul, the arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived and who ever will live, how does he live his life? He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Everything Paul does, he gives credit to his faith. Colossians 1.4 implies that our ability to love one another comes from our faith. James 1 verses 3 to 4, he writes this, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or when your faith is proven to be real, it gives you steadfastness. And then he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As your faith is tested, what do you end up becoming? Complete, mature, the text says perfect, lacking nothing, equipped for everything. Your faith is the foundation of all of that spiritual maturity. And there are more verses we can consider that refer to the absolutely stunning amount of things that are ours on account of our faith. So if we return to our question from a few moments ago, where does our faith come from? If we survey all that our faith does for us in a spiritual sense, then we must conclude that saving faith is in no way a natural faith. There's no way that we could naturally come to a kind of faith that would afford us all of these spiritual blessings. That would not be congruent. Saving faith is altogether different than faith that we might have in our friends to be dependable. It's completely different than the faith we have in our, even in our physical hearts to keep beating when we don't realize that they're beating. Saving faith is categorically distinct from our belief in the laws of gravity or motion. We have to realize that natural faith, that is our confidence in things that we can see and touch and hear, we have to see that such natural faith is limited to benefit only in this natural world. If you have a natural faith in something natural, then it benefits you only in a natural way. But the kind of faith that we need for justification is a supernatural faith. It's a faith that, according to Romans 4, this is stunning, actually is regarded by God as being as good as the righteousness of Christ. Because God said he saw Abraham's faith and he said, oh, you've got that faith. Okay, here's the righteousness of Christ to your account because you have that faith. Would it be even conceivable that we could muster a natural kind of faith so that God would look at it and say, oh, that's an impressive kind of natural faith. Here's the righteous merit of my son for you. That wouldn't make any sense at all. That's exactly what the Bible says happens in response to our faith that God credits the righteousness of Christ to our account on account of it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Romans 1 tells us that our natural hearts are darkened. And in John 3, Jesus says that unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we have a spiritual predicament that we are in because we cannot evidence the kind of faith in and of ourselves that even gets us to be able to see the kingdom of God. 
That term born, born again in John 3 is the exact idea, really, that we need to understand at this point. That's what regeneration is. Regeneration is the new birth given by the Holy Spirit. It's the awakening to life of a dead soul by means of God himself. Now, just to pause here for a moment, if you would humor me and let me give you a, a, what I think is a pretty silly illustration to help us understand this, but hopefully it's effective. Imagine you buy a house, and in the backyard you've got this large barn and there's a mountain of junk in the barn. And so you buy the house, you go to the barn, you start filtering through all the, all the junk. And as you get to the bottom of the pile, you notice that in this barn, there's what looks like, and here's where it gets silly, a spaceship. Like an alien spaceship that could fly at light speed to other galaxies. And you clean it off and find that there's an instruction manual, which of course you begin to read right away because you want to use this thing. And in the manual, it makes it clear that the only possible fuel for this spaceship is a refined element that does not exist on Earth. It's a new source of energy found in the universe, and it's simply impossible to synthesize it on Earth. So, are you going to be flying this spaceship anytime soon? No, because you don't have the fuel for it at all, not unless what happens... You won't even be starting the thing until someone way from out there brings to you what is needed to empower it. You can't make the fuel. You can't find it. You can't modify the spaceship to run on something else. It runs only on that which you cannot make, what you cannot buy, what you cannot find, even what you cannot comprehend. And this is exactly the situation with our spiritual souls. We begin life with our souls dead in transgressions and sins. We begin life unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God. We begin life unable to see the kingdom of God. And we lack the ability to make for ourselves life. We lack the ability to even earn life for ourselves. We lack the ability to find life, much less to put it into ourselves. And we lack the ability to know even how to get it, where to find this life. In John 3, Jesus said that the new birth is like the wind. We don't know where the wind is coming from or where it's going. And that's what Jesus says the new birth is life. He says, even though you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, you still can't get to heaven without it. So our most desperate need is for God himself to come to us with the life that we could never find, make, or buy. We need him to come from his realm down to our realm to give us what we could never have on our own. We read about this in several places in the Bible. John 1.13 tells us that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. James 1.18, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.3, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So regeneration is a work of God that puts life or fuel into our souls. This new birth gives us power to do things that we could not otherwise do. And the first of those things that we could not otherwise do is that we turn in faith to God. Such faith is simply impossible without the empowering work of God to produce it. And we know this from the fact that saving faith is supernatural and that therefore it requires a supernatural work for us to have it. And we also know this from what Scripture teaches us in many places. One of those is 1 Corinthians 2.14, where we read that the natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, let alone believe them. And then we also know it to be true from our own experience, I think, that the empowering work in order for us to believe the gospel comes from God alone. None of us would take credit for our ability to understand things or put it together. We depend on God. Which of us would ever take credit for having finally been able to figure out on our own this way to salvation? Which of us would stand here and say that God rewarded us with salvation because we were wise enough, not enough to believe him? None of us would do that. This experience of the converted soul is often expressed well in the lines of hymns that we sing. One of them that I think of is the hymn, I Know Whom I Have Believed. In one of the verses of this hymn, we see this line, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. The Spirit is responsible for our faith, not us. And then the next verse, I know not how this saving faith to me He did impart. I don't know how I came to have it. I wasn't that smart. I wasn't looking for it. But suddenly, somehow, the Spirit of God created this faith in my heart so that when I looked at Scripture, I responded in belief to it. When I saw Christ, I responded in faith and repentance to Him. Then there's the great Wesley hymn that we sang this morning. The third verse in modern hymnals goes like this. We sang it. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The rising and the going forth and the following are all metaphors of faith. To rise, to go, and to follow. That's faith. That's what true belief is. It's the forsaking of all else to run after Christ. And Chuck Wesley says that this faith happened only after what? The light came in and the chains fell off. And freedom was granted to his heart. This is exactly what the new birth is like. It floods your heart with light. It removes the chains of sin so that you naturally and logically and reasonably do the only thing that you would do if you were stuck in a prison. You would run out to the light. And so if we put all this together, 
we end up with the following conclusion. If we are justified before God, meaning that we have our sins forgiven and we have the righteousness of Jesus counted for us, then it must be true that a mighty work of God that we call regeneration has produced in us the faith required for our justification. We conclude that justification and regeneration go together like being alive goes with having a heartbeat. You aren't one without the other. But that doesn't mean that the new birth of regeneration and the justifying work of God are exactly the same things. They are related for certain, but one and one cannot happen without the other, but they're not exactly the same thing. And the difference between the two of them helps us to understand uh, what is something confusing when you put them together. On the one hand, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, our fruitful obedience to, to Christ as Christians is not the basis for our justification. We know that. But on the other hand, we cannot claim to be justified if we do not walk a life of obedience. So how can it be possible that justification is not based on obedience while at the same time obedience gives proof to the authenticity of justification? Or to put the question in terms of the way the authors of the New Testament write, how can it be possible for Paul to say this in Romans 3.28 that one is justified by faith apart from works while James says this in James 2.24, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says justification apart from works. James says you're justified by works. Martin Luther, if you haven't heard this, said he didn't like the book of James. <laughs> Trying to put those together is messy. It's difficult. It sounds as if these guys are saying the complete opposite thing. Paul says justification not by works. James says justification by works. So which is it? Or how do we reconcile this tension? Well, I think that this conundrum is very clearly resolved as we consider the difference between justification and regeneration. Here's how. Justification, and here's where we get a little bit theological, so buckle in a little bit and be ready to listen. Justification is a work that God does outside of the sinner. There's a very fancy Latin phrase that we use to describe this. It's the phrase extra nos, and it means outside of ourselves, outside of us. When God justifies, he does not do something in us to make us just. He rather declares us just in a legal or a judicial setting. If you ever get asked a tricky Christian trivia question about justification and the person says, in justification, when you are justified, does God make you just or declare you just? Well, the answer is that he declares you just. He does not make you righteous. Now, that would definitely not fit with our current experience, would it? If God made us righteous, I would say, I've got an issue there because I'm not righteous as I should be. So what happens is this. 
that God looks at Christ on the cross and he regards the sinner's sin as if it belonged to Jesus. And he regards the Savior's perfection as if it belonged to the sinner. So at the cross, God looks at the Savior and treats him as if he sinned. And he looks at the sinner and treats him as if he was fully perfect as Christ was. There's this judicial exchange. He doesn't actually, this is really important, he doesn't actually make Jesus a sinner because then Jesus would cease to be God because God cannot sin. He merely treated Jesus as if he was a sinner. Nor does he actually make sinners righteous at the cross because if he did, then we would be justified on whose merit? Ours. If he made us righteous. And scripture tells us we are not justified on our merit. We're justified on Christ's merit. So he considers us to have obeyed as Christ obeyed, not actually making us obedient in the same way that Christ was obedient. The right, you, the right word to use, not the word make, is one like consider or reckon or even impute. The book of Romans is full of these terms. God considered Jesus what we are while he was on the cross. And God considers us what Jesus is instead. God imputed our sin to Christ so that Jesus could then pay for it. And then God imputed Christ's righteousness to us so that we could live forever. Or we could say that Jesus, that God treated Jesus the way he should have treated us, which is eternal death, so that he could treat us the way Jesus deserves to be treated, eternal life. And all of that happened outside of us. Actually, it happened in a moment at the cross or in a span of three hours at the cross before we were even born. But God's eternal, not bound by time. So all this happens outside of us. God is in heaven and he's keeping score. And at Calvary, he decided to give our ledger to Christ and then give his to us instead. This is the glory and the stunning beauty of justification. But again, it's a work that God does outside of us. Extra nos. But there is a preceding work. A work prior to this, at least logically, that has to happen. After all, we remember that scripture indicates that God does this work of justification through what? Faith. And that's an us thing. It's not Jesus' faith that's given to us. It's our faith. It's our own faith. So how does that come into this? Well, faith comes about in us because of this other work that God accomplishes. This other work that God does in, is one that happens inside of us, or in the Latin, intranos, inside us. This is the work that energizes our souls so that we can respond in faith for justification. And we also must be careful to see that the Outside of us work, justification, and the inside of us work of God, they cannot occur separately. God cannot do one of them without the other. They must occur together. What God does for our souls outside of us, he also has to accompany with the proper work inside of us. 
To do one without the other would be inconsistent. It would be unjust. It would be contrary to his own nature. And we have to realize that in the eyes of God, an infinite being, there really is no separate work. He does the work. This is us from our limited human vantage point, trying to piece together what we see in Scripture that God has done for us in our salvation. We have to realize that we are doing the very best we can in trying to explain these things, explaining an infinite, eternal work of God in a finite, limited way. That's why it's difficult. This outside-of-us work we call justification And the inside of us work we call regeneration. Inside of us, God gives us life so that faith happens so that God can justify. These two are most clearly connected by means of that faith. The work of regeneration brings faith. God justifies on account of faith. So we can say that God justifies those whom he regenerates. That's how they fit together. But we also have to realize that regeneration does far more for us than just fitting us for justification. Now that sounds crazy. Just justifying us. Only merely justifying you. Only considering you righteous as Christ is righteous. As if that's not glorious enough. But my friend, scripture tells us that our regeneration does vastly more than that for us. When the new birth happens to a sinner, that person is suddenly and spectacularly and permanently changed. Here's how scripture describes the immense change that a person undergoes when they are regenerated. This work is described in a vivid image in the book of Ezekiel. The prophet writes this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Regeneration is a change in which the heart, which used to be a spiritual stone, now becomes a beating, pulsing, spiritual heart that has life in it. We also understand this work of regeneration in terms of a new birth. John uses that in his gospel over and over again. When you are born, you are granted life by someone else and not your own self. You do not contribute to the action of your birth in any way. And when you are born of God, you can then never die in whatever sense he has birthed you. That would be nonsensical. The life given to you at your spiritual birth is the kind of life that God gives. What kind of life can God only give? Eternal, unending, perfect life, because that's who God is. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read about the regeneration being like a second work of God's creation. 2 Corinthians 5, we read this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then this glorious phrase, all this is from God. God has created us anew. When God finished his work of creation in the book of Genesis, what did he say about it? Very good. Good, 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 very good. 
What God creates is beyond good. It's perfect. And Paul brings that to our attention in that verse. All this is from God. So since it is God who recreates us, our new self, since it comes from the creative work of God, is perfect. It's good. It's complete. We also read of the image of putting off an old person and putting on a new person in Ephesians 4. Paul writes this, that we have put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the new person that we become by means of regeneration is one that is created after the likeness of God himself. It's created in righteousness and true holiness. The new person we become is a person like God, holy and righteous. Our new heart is like God's heart. That's also why Paul could tell the the bickering Philippians the means to get along with each other is because you have the mind of Christ. Just everyone start thinking the way Christ would think. And you can do that because you have his mind. And we also realize that our regeneration comes not only with marvelous blessings in the present, but it has also stored up for us wondrous things to come. Peter wrote that our new birth is for this purpose in 1 Peter 1, to possess an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He attaches that eternal thing to come to our new birth, to being born again, to our regeneration. To go back to my really silly illustration about that spaceship, let's say that a, a meteorite fell from the heavens and it contained the precise substance that you needed to fuel this thing. It was an unending and a perpetual supply. This spaceship, spaceship would now be capable of mind-blowing things, and I'm sure you would want to try it out. I mean, who wouldn't want to go circle Jupiter this afternoon? This kind of unimaginable empowering is the kind of unimaginable empowering that our souls have today, right here sitting in the pew. We go from being hard and unresponsive to God in any way to having a heart that beats for him, that longs to be like him, a heart that loves God. We go from being unborn, being incapable of bringing about our own birth, to being born As a child of God himself. This is a position of wealth and power and privilege and glory. We go from being broken and useless and without form. To being created anew in a way that resembles God himself. We go from a selfish and corrupt self to a godly and righteous self. We go from having a mind like Satan to having a mind like Christ. We go from having no spiritual rights beyond deserving eternal death to suddenly having the spiritual rights to heaven and all its glories. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, all that is from God. You didn't bring that about on your own. God worked in you to bring all that to pass. He did this for us when he regenerated our hearts at an instant. 
And then notice how practical all this is. Notice how much those things relate to our everyday experience. Justification, remember, is outside of us. It doesn't touch our hearts. It, it causes us to worship, yes, but that work is outside of us. Regeneration is so practical in our hearts for a daily experience. Not only does our regenera- regeneration grant us the faith that is needed for justification, and that's a glorious thing that it does, but it also grants us the ability to fight sin. It grants us the ability to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It grants us the ability to love one another. It grants us the ability to understand deep spiritual truths from God's word. It gives us the ability to trust God when we can't see the future. And it gives us the ability to hope in the things to come. And it gives us the ability to accomplish a host of other things. And all of it we call spiritual fruit. Fruit of regeneration. Fruit of new life. How do you know that you are physically living? Well, you walk and you eat and you breathe and you speak and you do all sorts of other things. How do you know that you are spiritually regenerated? How do you know that you have spiritual life? Well, you do the fruitful things that a spiritually living person does. When we consider all these things that are true of a person who's been regenerated, we come to see what the doctrine of perseverance of the saints really refers to. This is the whole point of the sermon. We're finally getting to it. It refers to the fact that God's work of regeneration will never fail. And so we say the saints persevere because God's work never fails. If God has changed your heart from stone to flesh, then you will always be tender to his ways. If God has birthed you into his family, then you will always, in some way, resemble him. If God has created you again, then you will work properly to bring him glory. Because God doesn't create something that doesn't work. If God has put a new self on you, then you will look like him in godliness and righteousness. If God has given you a mind like Christ's mind, then you will love his commandments and his word. And if God has reserved an inheritance in heaven for you, then you will have all of your hope set upon it. If you are regenerated, then you will persevere in all those things and in others. That's not to say you'll be perfect. That's not to say that you'll never sin. That is not to say that you should have a crisp, clean, neat, and tidy life all the time, because you won't. It is rather to say that there will always be something, something in your heart that you can point to that reveals regeneration. Anyone can imitate certain kinds of fruits. The Pharisees did it very well. And remember what Jesus called them, whitewashed tombs. There are plenty of ways to fake external, self-righteous kinds of fruits. But no one can fake true fruit of regeneration. No one can fake being convicted of your sin in private. You can't fake that. No one can fake longing to be like God. 
No one can fake being motivated to live for God's glory alone. No one can fake having desires that are like God's desires and having thoughts that are like Jesus' thoughts. And no one can fake having all your hopes set on heaven. Those are things and there are other things like it that you just can't fake. The doctrine of perseverance indicates that the true Christian will persevere in life in those kinds of things. And the reason that the Christian will so persevere is not because they are so motivated. It's not because they're so special. It's not because they're so strong. It's not because they're so smart or they're so determined. The only reason why they persevere in those things is because they have been regenerated by God's power. Because they have been stuck to the vine as a branch and that vine is Christ. Now, that was a really long introduction to getting into the second part of the sermon that I started last week. But it's a very necessary discussion. I hope you understand. The text that we began discussing was 1 John 1, 5-10. And there we read about this really important principle, walking in the light. And I'm afraid that if we did not have a good understanding of the supernatural power in our hearts that fuels us to be able to walk in the light, then we might have misunderstood John's whole point altogether. And I don't want to do that. So next week, we'll look at the idea of perseverance in John's letter and specifically how he teaches it in those verses in chapter 1. But for today, first of all, let's remember that there is a connection between your justification and your regeneration, but that they are at the same time distinct from each other. Secondly, let's remember that whereas justification occurred outside of you, regeneration is that work that happened inside of you. So anytime you see spiritual fruit in your life, your mind immediately goes to, God, thank you. You changed me so that I could yield to this for your glory. It's not me. You did a work. And you're completing your work. And then number three, remember that regeneration is a permanent empowering to persevere in fruitful obedience from the heart. Fruitfulness is something that comes from the inside out, not just that you tack on. Please don't be so concerned with how you appear on the outside. Be concerned with what comes from the inside. Live the power of your regeneration. Tap into Christ as your source. And friends, if you don't know what it is to live a regenerated life, if all you're doing is trying to make yourself on the outside look okay, then you don't know what it is to live a life of regeneration. So therefore, it is impossible that you have been justified because you don't know saving faith. Because you don't evidence everything else. That's how James can say faith without works is dead. It's a faith that's dead because it doesn't come with all the other accessory fruits. So may we focus ourselves on seeing that we indeed have that true saving faith that is ours from regeneration. Father, help us to understand your word. These are not necessarily easy things that we have wrestled with today. And I pray that the hearts of your people will continue to think about right doctrine as we, as we derive it from Scripture alone, not from our own thoughts. I, I hope and pray that I have explained 
nothing that is outside the bounds of your scripture today. I hope and pray and trust that nothing I said in any way can contradicted with your word or was in conflict with your word, but that all of it was true either by explicit statement or by necessary implication from what your word teaches, that it is altogether biblical, because only when we think about that which is biblical are we thinking about that which is true and authoritative and powerful. So I pray you will help your people today, help us all to discern how you are producing fruit in us through means of regeneration. We ask you would help us to this end in Jesus' name. Amen.